Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. I always encourage people to be curious, to go out to eat in foods of new cultures. So you will always have these memory taste cards and you'll remember, oh, well, that time I was in Vietnam sitting on the beach eating the most delicious shrimp roll. And if you know that the four things that will help you get that taste are salt, fat, acid, and heat, then you can go toward that. But if you don't know where you're headed, how do you know if you're on the right path? You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. So for today's episode, it's really exciting. We have Samin Nosrat, who is the author of James Beard award-winning cookbook, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Later on, we'll also be talking to Deb Perlman from Smitten Kitchen, who's going to take a question from a reader. But first of all, let's talk about Samin. She's one of my favorite food writers around. She really breaks down in complex uh, subjects into simple speak. This book has sold over 100,000 copies. She writes a column for the New York Times Magazine. She has a show in production on Netflix. Uh, the conversation was really fun. I think uh, the, the thing I took away from it the most was kosher salt, the difference between Crystal Diamond and Morton's. Is there a difference? Oh, hell yeah, there's a difference. And we went over it and we also handed out a, a bowl of salt uh, to the audience. Could you taste the difference in a blind test, do you think? I think, Yeah, we definitely did. The audience was uh, really into it. Some of them might have been snorting it at the end. Uh-oh. Yeah, it was pretty illicit. Here's Matt talking to Samin at Books Are Magic in Brooklyn. <laughs> I love your book. Like, the first, like, oh, fuck moment that I got. It's about kosher salt. Yeah. So... Kosher salt is not the same. No, these, not these, the same. This, this box of, of Morton kosher salt is double the salt of the box of Diamond Crystal. Yeah. That is remarkable. I mean, because basically I've been cooking with the same boxes, right? Yeah. Like interchangeable. Like for, not interchangeable. Not well, inter do you know, can I tell a little story? I don't think Please. it made it into the book, but my friend Jill Santo Pietro, she used to work at the Times. She did a lot of recipe testing for the Times Magazine. And do you remember like, I don't know, however many years ago there were those like... New York Times Magazine chocolate chip cookies that took the internet by storm. Like everyone was resting them and all that stuff. She tested that recipe 22 times. They ran the recipe. It just said kosher salt, hemp for the salt. <laughs> and the next day somebody was like, this is, in a, you know, wrote, you know. Also people love to write letter, angry letters to the New York Times. So, <laughs> and someone was like, this is inedible. It's disgusting. Uh, it's like a salt lick. It's so horrible. And she hadn't specified that she had used diamond crystal and other people were using Wharton. So that was this kind of mind blowing moment for oh, her. Yeah. yeah. And this is just one of like 5,000 little notes I wrote in my iPhone <laughs> when reading your book, because wow. this book and I, my first kind of question is this book is not an average or typical cookbook. There are certainly recipes, but those are in the back. The book is to be read. I would say you actually can put this on your nightstand as much as in your kitchen. So how do we negotiate this how do, without having like formal recipes in the first, I would say, three quarters of the book? How do we use it? And the second part is you say in the book that you have these little experiments that you want us to, to make. So tell us about the experiments. Sure. I was a writer before I was ever a cook. So and I've always loved reading 
like since I can remember. So to me, to write a book that was readable was really important. And I went through so many different iterations of how to organize this book and how to share this information. First, it was going to be 12 essays. Then it was going to be, you know, there were so many different ways. And so, but all throughout, it was this constant that I wanted it to be readable. So to me, it was really important to the point where we actually have a how to use this book in the beginning. And (laughs) it's like, please read the book. Yeah. Yeah. Please read the book. (laughs) Yeah. And so, um, as I've become a better cook and learned how to teach other people how to cook, I really realized quite early that um, telling stories is a great way to teach a lesson. As far as the kitchen experiments go, a lot of the time I feel like you won't trust me. There's only so much I can do if I'm just some character who wrote a book and it's on the page. So if I can show you something simple to do that you can do at home and you can see and taste the difference for yourself, then that's going to stick with you so much more. So if you salt one chicken the day before and one chicken right before and you put them both in the oven and one the one that was salted day, the day before practically butchers itself, there that is going to go so much farther than anything that I could tell you, you know, and you'll remember the importance of that. So the title, for some who may not know, the title is Salt, Fat, Acid, and Heat. So there's like the four most important tenets of cooking you've deduced in this text. Did you always have in your mind these are the four most important tenets, or did you negotiate like maybe there was three and the and acid was you realized that was no acid's important. <laughs> Explain the organization a little bit and how you came to those four most those four important tenets. It was definitely something that coalesced all at once for me, you know, over time basically. So the story that 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 sums it up is I sort of a series of serendipitous events brought me into the kitchen of Chez Panisse restaurant in Berkeley, which is Alice Waters's incredible institution. And I had to really, I had to beg for this job and it was so enchanting and inspiring and sensual in there. And I just immediately knew I wanted to learn how to do what these people were doing, but I didn't know anything about cooking. And so I would show up every day, the menu changes every day. And I'd sit at this menu meeting and the chef had this, Uh, He would have written a menu based on what was in season and what we had and what he was inspired by and some trip that he took last summer to San Sebastian. And he would say, okay, like you're going to make paella, you're going to make gazpacho, you're going to do this, you're going to do this. And everyone except me would just get up and go make it. (laughs) And in the meantime, he had given me this list of cookbooks to read and really told me to cook from cookbooks. So it wasn't lining up what I was seeing them do, which was they never used recipes. They never measured anything. They didn't measure anything. (sighs) Like there were no cups. There were no gallons. There's like a there's big eight cup measures, which are more for knowing like... For 100 people, which is how many they served yeah. downstairs, you make eight cups of polenta. You know, there was yeah. sort of that. But there was no, like, very precise measuring spoon. None of that. And, and for so, spices especially. No, all of that was by yeah, taste. By and taste. that's and I'm talking about the savory kitchen. In the pastry kitchen, yeah. they measure everything. It was really disorienting for mm-hmm. me because I had no... I You know, I didn't know the difference between really basic things. I didn't know yeah. cumin from fennel seed. And the lab, spice labels weren't jar like labeled. Spice, <laughs> you know, this jars. So they would be like, go yeah. get cumin. And I'd come back with... And it was like always a very embarrassing. <laughs> and so... <laughs> but eventually I started to notice that there were these patterns. There were things that they were always doing every day, no matter what. They always... Well, first of all, they were always tasting everything. Yeah. All the time, before we started, while we were cooking... 
before we served the food, as we were serving the food, always adjusting. The thing we were most commonly adjusting with was salt. That was the most important thing to get right. And also every single day we would go down into the butchery room and butcher the meat for the next day and salt it. So it didn't matter if tomorrow it was going to be barbecued pork Mm -hmm. or roasted chicken or Italian, I don't know, braised beef. It was always salted. It didn't matter the culture. Same thing happened for me with fat. I eventually, I started to see these patterns that they would pay attention. Butter always had to be cold on the pastry side Mm -hmm. and oil had to be hot before you put something into a pan. Acid, every time we tasted, they were always like, this needs a little acid, which was this clinical word that I didn't know what that meant. You know, and it was, I realized over time they really just meant some lemon juice or vinegar Mm -hmm. or sometimes cheese, like goat cheese is acidic. Anything acidic that would sort of create balance Mm -hmm. and um, brighten food. Um, and you would, and and because I was standing there with my little spoon behind them all, like you yeah. know, I was like too nervous to get in there and like give my own opinion. But I would taste it before and taste it after they fixed it, and it would explode yeah. with flavor in my mouth. And so I saw, and so salt fat acid is very much this thing all cooks talk about: salt fat acid, salt fat acid. I was always hearing that, and heat, you know, is cooking. And again, like there were not really any temperatures on the oven dials. There was a way where these guys had equal facility with the wood mm-hmm. oven. Mm-hmm. Or the grill, like if we ran out of space on the stove, they'd be like, just build a fire and cook over that. Like put the pot over that. I was like, what? (laughs) There's no knobs. No, it was insane. And so. uh, I'll say this. I'll interrupt you and say that there's a a really cute illustration that shows the knob of an (laughs) oven and every number Number. on it is scratched out with a Sharpie. Yeah, and it says Samin was here. And it says Samin was here. And I love that Samin is here. Samin is there. Part of your narrative. We can talk about that. But temperature is less important. Yeah, well, and then temperature. It's not so much the temperature. It's just understanding what's happening to your food. So Mm -hmm. you could be braising something on the stove and that's just bringing it up to a boil, turning it down to a simmer. You could be doing it in the oven and the temperature is not important. It's being at a simmer is what it's important you could do it in a pinch i have a friend here who doesn't have a kitchen she only has a grill yeah. so she just cooks um, everything boils water yeah she boils her water on the grill she yeah. braises her stuff on the grill so you get to this point where it doesn't matter what the source of heat is it matters what's happening in the pan and i really did have like a beautiful mind moment of the salt fat acid heat mm-hmm. and i came to the chef and i said i figured this out yeah. I figured out what you guys all, like, I'm a brilliant genius, salt, fat, acid, heat. <laughs> I'm Albert Einstein of cooking. And he just looked at me. He's like, yeah, we all know that, you know. And, <laughs> and, and I felt kind of betrayed because I was like, you're sending me home to read cookbooks. This yeah. is not written anywhere. None of you have told me this over the past two years. I had to figure this out by myself. So to me, once I knew it, there was not another thing that mm-hmm. there wasn't part of it that was less important. And there yeah. wasn't another thing. That, this was it. it. They're equally distributed too. I think the chapters have equal length or really close to equal length. For the more or part. less. I mean, and yeah. certainly acid is a little bit less scientific and more about taste. Yeah. And so like the chapter might be shorter, but to me, it's no less of an important, yeah. like to me, actually salt and acid are the things I always, if it's off, like to me, I can't enjoy food. So. What's the per- most like perfectly balanced dish that uses those four tenants is that that really stumped you've done like a billion interviews i know but like that's a very specific and weird question it is a weird question yeah because anything can do that like i'm trying to think of like what's a really i mean the like i'm broken record i always say caesar salad yeah that's really yeah that was because it's like creamy there's multiple forms of salt there's anchovies and worcestershire sauce and parmesan cheese and i always pound my garlic with a pinch of salt to help it get really you know fine and then you add actual salt and then there's lemon juice and vinegar two kinds of acid so it's all about balance anything you know in fact 
I would say anything like that that's like creamy, but also you want it to be acidic because otherwise it'll be just too rich. Those kinds of things yeah. where you have to taste them 50 times while you're making it. And yeah, then by right. the time you're ready to eat, you don't want to eat it anymore. That's <laughs> 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 I love that you called this Judy Rogers quote, this quote, recipes don't make food taste good. People do. So this is like an, an anti-recipe statement. Yes, girl. Yes, girl. I mean, I think cookbook publishers are in the business of creating books that have recipes in them, but this is not the case for this book. So let's just explain a little bit more about how the recipes work in your book. Well, if I had had my way, I wouldn't have put any recipes in the book. Um, But that, as you said, is not the publishing way. So (laughs) So it wasn't going to happen. Like it just wasn't really an option for me so I had to figure out how I could put recipes in and feel like I was still being true to myself Mm -hmm. and my message because I'm what I'm writing a whole book telling you you don't need recipes to cook and then following it with like that's kind of hypocritical so I had to figure (laughs) out like what's the story that connects these and also you know like I teach these classes I teach salt fat acid heat over and over like people come for these series 20 hours 30 hours 40 hours and always like we'll be doing it together we'll make our Caesar salad and I'm we're tasting and I'm like hey guys what does this need and they're like parmesan I'm Mm -hmm. like yeah you know and we they tasted their way there and I feel so proud of them and they feel like they can totally do it and then we get to the end of the class and they're like cool where's the recipe packet I'm like you got the card Like, we made it all the way here, and now you want a recipe packet? You know, and so I realized people need that, right? People need – I can't just push them into the deep end. They need a little help. They need some hand-holding. And also, if I could just give you the glasses through which to look at recipes, then I've done my job. It doesn't matter. Near the end – like, near the end of the heat chapter, you get in the idea of knowing what you want in the kitchen before you actually cook the dish. You have to know what you want. This is related to not cooking with recipes. Can you explain what that means? Like, well, especially if you just like pull it up on Google and you're like, that looks good. I'll make that. Because you have five minutes. Yeah. And that's what a lot of home cooks. They have like totally. six minutes to cook their dinner. Totally. And I think, you know, I think with any, I would say, creative pursuit, but creative in the, t- in the way of that you're creating something. So anytime you're making something, whatever it is, you can't get there unless you know what there is. Yeah. And that's probably true of anybody who, and this is not to say that like, all artists know what their finished painting will look like, but you probably can envision or feel the feeling of what you want it to feel like. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you have something that is your guide, your internal compass saying, oh yeah, I'm, I'm veering off course or no, I'm staying on the path. And so with cooking for me, you know, I always encourage people to be curious, to go out, to eat in foods of new cultures, to travel, to try new things. And the more of that that you do, the more rich and um, richly detailed Mm -hmm. your mental filing cabinet of taste cards Mm -hmm. will be. Mm -hmm. And so you will always have these memory taste cards and you'll remember, oh, well, that time I was in Vietnam sitting on the beach eating the most delicious shrimp roll. I want that taste. So you can pull that taste up and go for it. And if you know that Mm -hmm. the four things that will help you get that taste are salt, fat, acid, and heat, then you can travel, you can travel this path or you can open recipes and be able to, you know, the person might say, add two tablespoons of salt. And you're like, well, if I add two tablespoons of salt, is there really going to be room for me to add fish sauce too? And I want that fish sauce because that's the Vietnamese taste. So you can use your judgment more. So I think knowing what it is that you're after, knowing that you're after browned skin and a tender Mm -hmm. inside meat on your chicken, or knowing that it's you're after, I don't know, whatever, like a really 
Sprite salad, mm-hmm. then you can go toward that. But if you don't know where you're headed, how do you know if you're on the right path? So you speak about like food in a very visual sense. You're talking about these cards. And I think we haven't really talked about the visual elements in the cookbook because it's remarkable. This is one of the most imaginative cookbooks I've seen in years. It really is. It has, it's just dense with information, but it's really is presented in such a flawless and simple way. Explain the flavor wheel and how that came about. Well, it, for me, it really started way back at Chez Panisse, where every day we were cooking foods from different cultures, and over time I was seeing, wait a minute, there aren't really that many different things we do here. We <laughs> braise something every day, and sometimes it's like with rosé, and mm-hmm. lavender, and tomorrow it's with red wine from Chianti and rosemary, and then it'll be with preserved lemons and Moroccan spices. But we're still doing the same thing to the chicken every time. So once I realized, like, oh, there's only sort of so many ways that somebody cooks something, I, was, I realized I needed to learn and understand what all the different flavors of the world were so I could apply them. And suddenly the roast chicken that I had could be 20 different roast mm-hmm. chickens. And I could make tacos or pho or, you know, all these different things. I don't know why I would said pho because you wouldn't make that with roast chicken. But mm-hmm. what, you get my point. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so for, in, when I met Wendy McNaughton, who I stalked at length, She's this incredible illustrator and visual storyteller and masterful artist, really. She didn't know how to cook at all. And so our journey together was really one of learning for both of us, where I had to learn how she made stories visual and she had to learn what it was that I was trying to get across. And so I came to her and I said, what I want you to do is make this two-page drawing of the world, a map of the world, and then on every country in teeny tiny handwriting, you can write the like important things. And she was like, "That's insane!" Because then you have to know like where Bolivia is, yeah. when, you, and also everything won't fit. Like you're crazy, not going to happen. And so, um, but once I explained to her the concept at work, that like you, then she was able to sort of tell me, it's- "Oh, what you want is a flowchart. This is a flowchart where you say." I want this country that leads me to the next thing, leads me to the next thing. But it's a flow chart with many different options. And so when you fold that upon itself, it becomes a wheel. So she very quickly, and then we worked with an incredibly brilliant book designer, Alvaro Villanueva. And he was the one who told us, oh, you can't do that on just a two-page spread mm-hmm. because half the information will get lost in the yeah. gutter. So he was like, we really have to do this fold out, which caused great grief for my publisher. But yeah. ultimately, I think paid off. It executed pretty well. No, absolutely. <laughs> Tell me, are there some cookbooks that inspired you? So many. Um, you know, visually? I love, okay, oh. It's called 75, there's like these books that are 75 herbs for your garden, Mm. 75 fruits for your garden. Mm. I just have been a collector of illustrated cookbooks for a long time. So uh, there's Alan Davidson, who was this incredible academic. He wrote like a super beautiful illustrated book of both fish and fruits that are, I don't know, like I just love... I've really always gravitated toward illustration. At the same time, I love beautiful food photography. I'm a, I have a lot of friends who are fantastic photographers. I just knew that photography wouldn't serve this book. And so it almost yeah. from the first moment, I just knew it couldn't be photographed. Yeah, and I think just there's a lot of work that goes into a fully illustrated book because you really have to draft and round and round, right? We were best. I mean, we still are each other's number one, like phoned person. I mean, yeah. no, she has a wife, so she has a yeah. fiance, so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm number You're two. Number she's two. my number one. Yeah. Um, 
let's jump back into the cooking. We kind of were talking about book production, and now let's get back into cooking. Uh, you talk about two mommy, which oh, yeah, I think is mommy. really funny. <laughs> two mommy, as in too much umami. And I think it's really in this era of like the Brussels sprouts that have fish sauce and bacon and crusted with Parmesan. You're not endorsing like over seasoning your food. It's a, it's like low hanging fruit to do that. So explain two mommy and how <laughs> we should not fall into that trap as home cooks, like the yeah. two mommy trap. So uh, yeah, two mommy is what you said, where it's yeah. where you were like, oh, these things are so good, so I'm just gonna put them all in this thing, <laughs> you know. And umami is like to me, I always joke my memoir will be called like Parmesan on everything or something. <laughs> like I do, and par- you know, par- yeah, Italy, totally. Yeah. And Parmesan and Heinz ketchup are sort of two of the most powerful and rich sources of umami for us in the kitchen and they also you know parmesan is also a source of salt and acid and heinz ketchup heinz ketchup is the only ketchup guys it truly uh, is yeah. <laughs> you say that casually like yeah. heinz ketchup is in the book and i kind of yeah. pause it's like you really love ketchup i love ketchup yeah and like you know it's sweet it's salty yeah. it's acidic it's yeah and like it makes any i'm like the condiment lady at my house my fridge <laughs> is just all condiments and so because a condiment can make the simplest thing or something that's not that good good you know and it can do it at the last second when you're tired and you don't feel like doing much so i don't and i'm tired and don't feel like doing much a lot so yeah (laughs) so you are tired when you come home and all the time and need to make dinner because i think that's a big issue everywhere but you know in new york we kind of like we like work a lot like we work till seven work till eight work till nine we all kind of want to cook more so how do you break through that fatigue some of it is thinking ahead and I was like cooking, cooking batches, not even planning so much, but just making more of, I believe in leftovers, you know, yeah. and I also think making something that's pretty a neutral flavor, like oh. a pretty basic roast your chicken with no spices on it. And then tomorrow add some cumin and turn it into tacos. Cool. The next day you can put the bones in a pot with some star anise and make faux broth mm-hmm. out of that. And then suddenly you get three different countries flavors out of one bird and make your one pot of beans and it can become all these different things. I, I definitely yeah. think that's a good tool, but you also shouldn't beat yourself up because it's hard. It's it hard is. to be a human. Like, and, uh, <laughs> and, but also like make your life easy, you know, stock your pantry. I have a lot yeah. of um, quinoa around. I have a lot of Jasmine rice around. Yeah. Jasmine rice cooks in 20 minutes. You yeah. put it on the stove by the time it's done. Like I have time to cook some kale, fry an egg, put some hot sauce or Parmesan on it. I want to call this like our, like, let's talk about food trends moment in okay. this, in this chat, because you're like really on top of your stuff and you have opinions. So when you think about like the blue aprons, green chefs of the world, the, the, the component box cooking. I heard a sigh over here. I so also sighed too. Yeah. You may have sighed. So what do I you mean, think about those? I have complicated feelings about it. I used to be unilaterally against it. To me, the greatest joy of cooking, the great, like the part I take the most pleasure of is the shopping. Like I love going to the grocery store. I love tasting all the different cherry tomatoes and choosing which one I'm going to buy. I love that. But also, it's kind of a drag if you have like if you have kids. And also, I live in a teeny tiny bubble called Berkeley, where every it's really fun to go to the grocery store because every day a new farmer has delivered a new variety of plums. Yeah. And I when I travel outside of that, you know, and I and I see beyond that, and I come, I come and I stay in this neighborhood a yeah. lot. And I understand now. I, there's a vegetable store on Atlantic that I love. The like, yeah. And on Henry, I, yeah. Yeah. And I go in there and I'm like, oh my god, they have the same broccoli rob that I buy at home. Like literally the yeah. same farm, which is really awesome because I love that farm. But yeah. it's coming all the way from California, so there isn't this great mm-hmm. luxury shopping as much more. And also in New York, man, you don't have a car. Like most people, yeah. you take it on the subway. So I've loosened my views, and I also have some friends who really love 
Blue Apron, and mm-hmm. they feel like they've learned a lot about cooking. And that's It's training part. wheels in, yeah. in some sense. Okay, the ne- next trend uh, or the issue is sous vide. What do you think about it? Like, you're, you're, you don't mention it really in your book. Consciously. Okay, so what is sous vide? It's uh, what, is sous-vide? what does sous vide mean? It means under vacuum, translates to under vacuum, and it's when food is uh, put in like usually a plastic bag and the air is taken out and then it's put in a low temperature water bath, mm-hmm. like much lower than simmering for a very long period of time. And the contr- what happens when you do that is um, because it's so the temperature is so gentle and the cooking method is so gentle. And it happens over such a long period of time, like sometimes overnight or even more 12, than 12 yeah, hours for many me. hours. Yeah. Um, it it's there's much less risk of it being overcooked. You are just have a much greater control mm. and precision to me. What the lesson of heat, what the kernel lesson of heat is, is what I said earlier, which is. To know how your food is cooking, you watch your food. You don't watch the heat source. And what are you doing when you're watching food? You're tuning in with your senses. So you're like smelling the browning starting to happen. You're seeing the browning starting to happen. You poke the thing to see if it's tender. Mm -hmm. You taste it. And you, you know, smell, see, say, I don't know what they're, here, you hear the sizzle. Thank you. (laughs) And you, you know, you have to be aware. And as you get to a point where you cook more and more, you start to learn those sensory signals. Like I can often hear now, I can be two rooms away and I can hear chicken, like accidentally the, you know, when chick, when fat renders out of a chicken, when it's cooking, it'll change from like just cooking to starting to fry in its own fat. And I'll be like, oh, I got to come back because I can hear that change. And if you put the thing in the plastic bag and put it in the water and set the timer and walk mm-hmm. away, you are not using your senses. To me, even though it's the most precise form mm-hmm. of cooking because you have this like incredible precision, that is actually in a lot of ways to me the least powerful and the least sort of exemplary of what I consider to be good cooking. Well said in the anti-sous vide lobby. Thanks. Like that's really good. <laughs> I think one thing too about sous vide just to note is that you can hold temperature for a long time. So if you like miss your window to serve, you can then preserve that. I think that's one application. I do think the eggs are awesome. Also, I'm not like super into putting my food in plastic and warm water yeah. all night. That's kind of weirds me yeah. out. And uh, But you can do the eggs and the eggs come eggs. conveniently in their own shell. And you put those in the water and yeah. there's no plastic involved. And the sous vide eggs are like little custard. You open it's it up, cute. it's like a little custard. It's really good. The last trend, and then we can get to some questions, is queso. Do you guys know what queso is? Queso. I is. only learned about this like from a cook who worked, who I worked with, who was from Texas. It's uh, a, yeah, a block of Velveeta cheese and a can of Rotel chilies. <laughs> is it Rotel salsa? I thought it was Rotel chili- tomatoes with chilies. Yeah, and you put it in like a crock Does- pot. And it melts, and it's like the yummiest, cheesy, tomato-y, chili thing. It's so delicious. Also, I deeply love queso. I love any processed cheese thing. My friend invited me to go to this baseball game and sit in this, like, fancy booth with her. I don't even like baseball, but I was like, is there going to be nachos? Like, stadium (laughs) It's so one of the best foods. And then the same friend a couple weeks later was like, do you want to come over for Fourth of July? I'm making hot dogs. I was like, will you have American cheese? (laughs) And speaking of salt, like, nacho, like, the, the liquid cheese nachos, you need to have oversalted chips right yeah. you have to have it they're under salted you're screwed. and then you're really thirsty and you're like i'm gonna drink some drink that's really bad for me yeah thank you <laughs> samin for for being here i appreciate it Thanks, thank Matt. you everybody <laughs> <laughs> Up next we're talking to deb perlman of smitten kitchen asking her a few questions about lasagna i've been on a real lasagna cake this winter and 
I know that you've developed lasagna recipes before. I've had your mushroom lasagna from Smitten Kitchen. That's great. I was wondering, do you have strong opinions about lasagna? It's like a controversial topic. There are ricotta people. There are bechamel people. There are mozzarella people. Interesting. Where do you where do you stand on these? I tend to prefer. I don't really care for baked ricotta at all. I just don't like it in pasta bakes. I don't like it in. I don't. Yeah, I don't care for it. Um, so I don't. I find that it just gets drier in the oven, and you get kind of this wet, dry separation, and it's not my favorite. I'm so much more. Once I had bechamel lasagna, I was like, oh, I think I like lasagna now. I also like ones where I guess I um, I don't mind mozzarella all the time, but I often feel like you can get it can detract the heaviness. Like I feel like one of the things I love about that Ina Garten recipe, um, it's um, the, the mushroom one, um, which I've tweaked from her over the years because I use less fancy mushrooms mostly, um, is that you think it would be so rich, but I feel like with the bechamel and the sauteed vegetables and like it's actually, it's definitely, it's not, it doesn't feel like an arterial assault. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's got a really good flavor and the edges get really crispy. Do you fall into a particular camp when it comes to types of pasta? Do you use the instant noodles? Do you use the regular boil noodles? Do you use fresh pasta? Okay, definitely fresh pasta if you can pull it off. It's definitely a bit of work, although theoretically it should be the easiest because maybe you even have a deli where like maybe you have some place where you can buy sheets of freshly made pasta and you could maybe just roll it out a little bit thinner and just patch that on. What I love is that if you're making it at home from fresh pasta, which of course is not something you I always do, um, you can um, actually just patchwork it on. It doesn't matter that the shapes are perfect. But I have a real like retro, um, like, you know, from growing up, I love the the lacy edged ones. I don't care for the no-bake ones. I think that they do work in some recipes that are expecting you to use them. But for most of them, they're just going to take the moisture out of the sauce. And unless your sauce is accommodating that or if you've done something like pre-soak them, it's going to mess up a, a rest, like a bechamel, which is less wet um it's gonna it's gonna detract from it i think are there kinds of lasagna that you've experimented or recipe developed over the years that were total failures (laughs) have you ever Mm. made a disaster lasagna i know i've definitely made some bad lasagnas before um but i um I just I think my favorite though is just the basic bechamel and the other one I've done I did a I wanted to do a classic lasagna bolognese for years and years and it's definitely one of like the hardest recipes for me to get right like it took me forever but once I did it's really like that was something that once a year for a dinner party not even like once every two years for a dinner party I'll make like two of them and it's like the centerpiece like you're not you can't eat anything all day I'm making lasagna bolognese tonight I'll be offended what was so hard to get right about that recipe I found it was really hard. First of all, you have to find two people who agree on what lasagna bolognese is. And also to get the numbers right. Like I feel like, you know, a lot of it's just handed down recipe and got extra bolognese or whatever. But like to actually get the sauce level right, to actually say, here's one layer of noodles and you're looking to put half a cup of sauce between them and and two thirds of a cup of this. I find that's really helpful and to know how much you'll need and how much is too much. Because if you're making it for the first time, wouldn't you like some guidance onto like what the really nice balance is so it's not too rich and not too dry. Cool. Thanks for talking to us about lasagna. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hazel. It's produced by Gabrielle Lewis. Our theme music is by Steve Raydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. 
Special thanks to the Books Are Magic family, Emma, Mike, and Michael. Confidence Wine supplied by Smith & Vine. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.